after working one of his most spectacular signs, that of the feeding of 5,000 men, and along with those men, a number of women and children also, after multiplying five loaves and two fishes, or two fish, in this desolate, uninhabited wilderness, after multiplying them into enough food to satisfy the hunger of this massive crowd of Israelites seated before him, Jesus immediately, in verse 22, immediately made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Now I want you to notice the word that is used right there in verse 22. He made the disciples get into the boat. That word there, that term, it's one of firm command. Meaning, Jesus compelled the disciples to get on this boat and leave. He constrained them. He ordered them onto this boat. The phrasing is interesting because it indicates and it suggests that the disciples didn't actually want to leave. They didn't want to leave the scene of the feeding. They wanted to stay. But why? Why would the disciples want to stay? Why would they be so keen on sticking around? And why is it that Jesus would so have, have to so firmly command them to vacate the premises? Well, the answer to that question is clarified as we note the response of the crowds to the miraculous work of Christ in feeding them. As the Apostle John recorded in John six fourteen and 15, it says this, When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So you see, the crowds identified, after Jesus fed the 5,000, they identified him as, according to John, the prophet who has come into the world. You see, the astounding act of feeding such a large crowd of people in this desolate, uninhabited wilderness presented to the crowds one of the most unmistakable, one of the most blatant, one of the most obvious pointers to Christ's identity as Messiah. And the crowds, at least for the time being, they picked up on it. Now, I don't want to overemphasize the capacity of the crowds to discern or to recognize Messiah. After all, they had already, up to this point in their history, pointed out a number of potential suitors to the role, a number of potential militarily inclined men for the role of Messiah. And most of them had already been crushed and put down by the Romans. One example of one who wasn't would be Judas Maccabeus, who won a victory for a time being about a century earlier. It wasn't a complete victory, however, but he won a victory. But now, once again... The Israelite peoples were under the oppressive thumb of yet another empire. And so here they are, under Roman rule, here they are in the wilderness, and the crowds point out yet another potential Messiah. Little did they know, however, that this is indeed the Messiah. Even if he won't or doesn't fit with their ideas about how he is going to liberate and free his people, from their bondage. You see, they were hoping that he would take their offer of kingship 
and rule from Jerusalem and free them from Roman rule. But here, we know, as we read the New Testament, we know that it's not at this time. He will not at this time ascend to the throne of national Israel, but he will go to the cross. He will bear in himself the wrath of God. He will, on that cross, pay the penalty for the sin of anyone who puts their faith and trust in him. That's how he will deliver and free and liberate his people from bondage. But here and now in our text, in this uninhabited place, the zeal of the crowd crescendoed into an attempt to coronate Jesus, King of Israel, at that very moment. Right then and right there, this enormous crowd of men presented themselves to Jesus as the beginnings of a standing army ready to fight for him if he would only just command them to. And you must realize... The nation of Israel has been waiting for a moment like this. They have been pining and yearning for a Messiah to come who will lead them to national freedom and national autonomy. Because since the times of exile, centuries earlier, Israel has languished and endured varying degrees of hostility and varying degrees of persecution from the nations that have been ruling over them for all those centuries whether it was the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans, Israel hoped and prayed through each successive empire for the day when the Lord would send them a king, for the day when the king would come and lead them out from under their subjection to foreign powers and into a golden age similar to that that their ancestors enjoyed under King David and King Solomon. You see, these crowds knew the Scriptures well enough to know that God had made promises to them. Prophetic words like those the Lord made to and through Moses come to the forefront at a time like this. You remember it? Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord said through Moses, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like Moses from among you, from your brothers. And it is to him you shall listen. So you see, a promise is made that there will be a prophet who arises, a prophet who comes into the world like Moses. But what is it that Moses had done that makes him so special? Well, it was under the leadership of Moses that the Lord struck Egypt with plagues, ultimately delivering Israel from their plight and their status as slaves in Egypt. The Lord, with Moses as his spokesman, assaulted and battered and pounded Egypt with strike after strike until finally Egypt could bear it no longer and with great haste and with great urgency they drove the people of Israel out of the land. And even when Egypt thought twice about freeing their slave labor force, when they cobbled together, they assembled the army of the most powerful nation on the world to, in the world to follow after, to chase after the fleeing Israelites in order to recapture them, the Lord again, through Moses, parted the Red Sea. And in that Red Sea, Israel passed through on dry land and came to the other side safely. But when the Egyptian army followed them into that Red Sea, that same sea came crashing down upon that army, killing every single last one of them. 
And not only did the Lord use Moses to liberate the nation from their subjection in Egypt, but when they were in the wilderness, Exodus 16:12 says that the Lord filled their bellies with bread. As they wandered in the wilderness, as they roamed about the desolate, uninhabited places on their way to the promised land, the Lord filled their stomachs with bread. And so here you see, in this desolate, uninhabited region, Jesus now fills the stomachs of the Israelites with bread. They watch him as he somehow multiplies all of this bread, and they all eat So here you've got Israelites sitting in the wilderness with full stomachs and so they look to him and they see in him the fulfillment of the promise made to them. This is the prophet who is to come into the world and seeing that this prophet has already filled our stomachs with bread, what's left for him to do but follow Moses' path and liberate us once again from foreign powers that rule over us. So this energy, this vigor of the crowds is only amplified and increased even more by the timing of this most dramatic and splendid miracle. It took place, as John tells us, during the Passover. During the Passover, when Israelites from all over the empire flocked to Jerusalem to remember and to celebrate the goodness of God to their nation on the night of the Passover when the Lord put to death every single one of Egypt's firstborn while passing over the houses and the families of the Israelites. And as the people remembered and observed this historical wonder and they pondered the liberty that had been secured for them by the Lord as a result, the Lord, who alone sets the captives free, the collective fervor and expectation and hope of the people waits for the arrival of Messiah. And their heat, this heat swelled up among them as they desperately prayed for the appearance of the promised deliverer like Moses to feed their bellies and to deliver them into a glorious national freedom once again. And so Jesus, as he feeds this humongous crowd, they see it. They feel it. Here is a man who fits the bill. Here is a prophet that we have been waiting for. Now that our stomachs are filled with bread, it's time to start the process of deliverance. And if he will not take the initiative, we will force him to. And as the crowds murmur about it, as they consider trying to force Jesus to take, to, to take on the role of king, as they discuss his identity as the prophet come into the world... And as the enthusiasm, as the sparks of their enthusiasm ignite into a blaze, as it continues to intensify, that's when the text tells us immediately Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side. Even though the crowds had rightly, at least for the moment, identified Jesus as the promised deliverer, they either forgot or they conveniently set aside a most important aspect of the Lord's promise. Listen to it again. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like Moses from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. You hear that? It is to him you shall listen. You see, the promised deliverer will not act at the whims of the crowds. He will not 
necessarily fit their expectations. No, the crowds, the people of Israel, they are commanded to listen to Him. Why? Because as the Lord said in just a few verses later, Deuteronomy 18, 18, and 19, He said this, again reiterating it, I will raise up for Israel a prophet like Moses from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So the prophet that they've had their eyes peeled for, the prophet that they've been hoping for, the text tells us that he will speak the very words of God, so listen to him. Do what he says. But sadly... While the crowds on this day might actually consider Jesus to be the promised one, to the one promised to Israel, they didn't listen to him. Jesus could not have been clearer in the message that he brought to the nation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the word Jesus preached over and over and over again. And that's the word they were supposed to listen to. However, the crowds sit here before him as people refusing to repent. Instead of listening to him, they set aside the whole listening to him component of the promise in favor of seeking a kingdom without the repentance that is called for by God. They put the command to repent out of sight in favor of trying to take Jesus by force and make him fit in with or operate according to their will and their desire. But this simply will not do. And Jesus, knowing that the disciples are also susceptible to the same misguided passions as the crowd, that his disciples at this point were vulnerable to the zeal and to the influence of the crowds, he compelled them to leave the scene immediately. And you can imagine them discussing this matter with Jesus, right? You can imagine them kind of the, the conversation going something like, Jesus, you've never ordered us to leave when the Pharisees were insulting you. You never ask us to go when they're rejecting you. But now, as things are starting to get interesting, as the crowds are agitating for your coronation as king, now, when we are so close to ourselves gaining seats of honor at your table because we are the ones following you. Now you're telling us to head out? Now you're telling us to leave? Why? Because Jesus knows the life that he has called his disciples to. He's called them and he's called us to a life of repentance a life of faithfulness to God, a life of holiness, self-sacrifice, counting the cost, a life of self-denial, a life of trusting in God, a life of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus has called them and he's called us to a life where we are blessed when others revile us and persecute us and utter all kinds of evil against us falsely on his account. He's called us to a life that recognizes that loving and serving Christ in this world means that we are sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That obeying and honoring Christ in this world might very well mean that you are delivered over to earthly courts, to wicked religious institutions for floggings. It might mean that you are dragged before kings and governors so that you will bear witness to Jesus to them. 
Honoring Christ in this world might mean or might result in the breakup of familial relationships. It might put an end to your closest earthly bonds as you take up your cross and you follow Him. The repercussions for followers of Christ in this world are great. You might very well, because you are committed to loving and serving and honoring Him, lose your life, lose your liberty, lose every single earthly possession that you hold dear. But we know this, we know the promise of God's Word, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. But the disciples don't grasp all of this yet at this moment. The disciples with Jesus at this time weren't at the point of living this out. Their perspectives are much too focused on, they're much too driven by, they're much too weighted by the expectations of the societies that the society that they were raised in. You got to imagine these young boys sitting in front of their father as they're growing up as their father reads the promises of scripture as their father comforts them with the stories of a, of, a, of a liberator and a redeemer and a messiah who will come and free them. Stories that fathers had told their children for centuries. And here he is. And they too might be overtaken by the excitement of the crowd who misunderstands what he is doing. They might be carried away by their own personal desire for seats of honor beside the king in this earthly kingdom. We see this disposition in the disciples throughout the Gospels. For example, a couple of examples. Later on in Matthew 16, Jesus is going to explain to the disciples what it means for what the Messiah will actually do. What it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. It's not an earthly crown because Israel refuses to repent, but instead, Matthew 16, 21 says, this is Jesus' description of his role, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And this was, this, hearing this was way too much for Peter. And so he took it upon himself to approach Jesus to take Jesus aside and to rebuke Jesus. Peter rebuked Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Matthew 16, 22. Only to be called Satan by Jesus for his efforts. You see, at this point, the disciples simply could not grasp or accept the idea that King Jesus would lay down his life in such a humble, seemingly shameful way. And later again, as James and John, thinking about the glories of Christ reigning and ruling over the earthly kingdom of Israel, sent their mom to Jesus. You can imagine that conversation, right? Hey, mommy, mommy. Can you run off to Jesus and see if you can get us somehow, some way, the best seats in the kingdom? So their mom, <laughs> young men, don't get your mom to do your dirty work for you. They sent their mom and she asked him in Matthew 20, 21, if they might sit in the, in the prime seats of honor in the kingdom. See, the disciples at this point are easy targets. 
They're wide open to. They're at risk of being swept up by the eagerness of the crowds to crown Jesus king by force without any repentance. And so Jesus immediately orders them to go to the other side, which they did. And now I want you to note what happens here. They are swept up in a desire for seats in the kingdom. But what does Jesus send them into? A situation exactly the opposite of what they were hoping for and what they were expecting. You don't get a seat in this earthly kingdom unless Israel repents. But what you do get right now is a seat on a boat that will be battered and assaulted by a terrible storm. It's not the seats of honor they're given. It's a dangerous, hostile, life-threatening storm that will test their faith. And as we've already noted in Matthew chapter 8, that Jesus calmed the storm, that Jesus is sovereign over the wind and sovereign over the waves, that Jesus knew exactly what he was ordering his disciples into and what a teaching moment it would be for them and for us. But while the disciples were getting into the boat, the text tells us that Jesus, instead of taking the crown to him, offered to him by the crowds, started to dismiss those crowds. In verse 22, he broke up the multitude. He sent that multitude away. He dispersed them. Why? Because the political hopes of the people did not align with the will of the Father. And so Jesus would have no part in them. He disbanded these crowds and sent them away before the situation could get out of hand. Because like the disciples, the crowds had no desire to leave. Why would they? You're sitting in front of a Jesus who fills your belly. A Jesus who they think might lead them to freedom. But probably to their great surprise, Jesus rejected their overtures. Because again, unless the crowds truly repent, unless the people truly return to the Lord, Jesus will not go along with their plan to install him as king. Repentance and faith is always the primary goal. Everything Jesus did in, to, and for these crowds was for the purpose of bringing them to repentance. Jesus would not and did not link arms with unrepentant crowds. Because even if they understand the truth that Jesus will ultimately set up his throne and rule from an earthly kingdom in the future when Israel does finally repent, even if they align with that perspective, without their repentance, there really is no fellowship between Christ and the crowds. And so he sends them away. And this is something I think we need to recognize today. Because as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it's not, nothing has changed. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, the Apostle Paul wrote, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, 
and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Did you notice it? Did you notice the clear distinctions that are being made there? It's either temple or idols. It's either light or dark. It's either Christ or Belial. And as believers, you must always remember, it must always be in your mind, that you have more in common with the believer in Jesus Christ who disagrees with every single one of your worldly opinions than you do the unbeliever who agrees with every single one of your worldly positions and opinions. And to link arms with an unbelieving world and feel like you have more in common with the temple of idols than with the temple of the Lord something that you need to repent of. Don't get caught up in believing that you're closer to the world than you are to your spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, even if you disagree on everything, the fact that you are united by Christ supersedes everything every worldly consideration. But here, after dismissing the crowds, 23 tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain by himself to pray. This is one of the regular practices of Jesus. Spending time alone in focused, intense prayer to God, especially when the time for either important decisions or in moments of great hardship were at hand. For example, before choosing the twelve, Luke tells us in chapter 6, verse 12 of his gospel, that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. So you see, Jesus prayed all night before choosing the twelve. And again, at Gethsemane, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he went to pray, and Matthew records that he took Peter with him and the two sons of Zebedee. He began to be very sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little while farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Luke writes that during this time of prayer, Jesus was in such agony as he prayed on this night that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Solitary, focused, intense times of prayer were the normal practice and habit of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why did he go up to pray on the mountain this, this particular time? I think it's for two reasons. First, is that throughout the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan was consistently laboring to get him to bypass the cross to take for himself an earthly crown. You see this in the temptations. Satan tempted Jesus with this very thing back in Matthew chapter 4, when Satan took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. 
And Luke tells us that after Jesus rebuffed that temptation in the wilderness, the devil departed from Jesus to wait for an opportune time. You see, after 40 days in the wilderness without food or water, in his weakened state, Satan took Jesus to a very high place and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and showed him all the glory of those kingdoms and said to Jesus, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. You see, Satan is basically saying to Jesus, look, here you are in the desert. You are starving. This is what your father does for you. Your father has given you nothing out here in this harsh and forbidding wilderness. And here you are on the brink of death. I can provide for you better than he can. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world without you having to endure any suffering, any difficulty, any trial. I will surely care for you. I will feed you. I will give you gifts. I will make your life easy and enjoyable. I will give you everything. All I ask in return is that you fall down and worship me. Is it really such a big ask given all that I would give to you? the same temptation. This is the repeated strategy of the enemy, both in the life and ministry of Christ and in your life too. Repeatedly attempt, he repeatedly attempted to convince Jesus that God is a terrible father. It's the same thing he tried to do with Eve. That God is a father who abandons his children to the wilderness. And he still works this angle in your hearts and minds to this very day. If he can convince you that your heavenly father has abandoned you. If he can convince you that your Heavenly Father is not sovereign over everything that is going on in the world, if he can cause you to doubt the Father's goodwill for you and your life, then he will try to fill that space with lies and deception. He will hold out to you in those moments delights to your eyes to lead you away from the Lord, but do not believe him. Do not buy into the lies of the enemy while he holds out the shiny fruit of sin and idolatry and dependence and focus on anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. When the, when the enemy holds out that shiny fruit to my own eyes, I have to consistently remind myself, the Lord is better. The Lord is better. Because he is. And so the crowds here, in trying to make Jesus king, are like Satan, offering to him the crown without a cross. At this opportune time, Satan once again held out to Jesus the same offer he did in the wilderness. All the crowds wanted were bread and miracles. And guess what? That's the very thing, same thing Satan wants for them. As long as the penalty for sin is not paid, so long as the narrow way that leads to life isn't paved, Satan doesn't care. If we are all physically fed and nationally peaceful, if we are free, Satan is without repentance, Satan is perfectly fine with that state of affairs. So long as people are not saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. For the crowds here, as long as they got what they wanted in the here and now, they were happy, they would be happy, and guess what? So would Satan. But Christ knows that this is gravely misinformed. He knows that it falls so far short of what he is going to do for humanity. He knows that the cross is necessary for reconciliation between God and man. 
And he will see to it that he goes to that cross no matter who stands in his way, no matter what stands in his way. And after feeding the 5,000, the opportunity to lay hold of the earthly crown is set before him once again. And his, immediately res- his immediate response is to send the disciples away and to go up by himself on a mountain to pray. To pray for strength to accomplish the will of the Father. But also... Notice that as Jesus prayed alone on this mountain, most likely he was also interceding for the disciples as he watched them. Mark tells us that he, he, watched, he saw them straining at the oars. He saw them making headway painfully because their boat was a long way from the land and it was being beaten by the waves because the wind was against them. See, the disciples, earlier on, could sense the metaphorical winds blowing in their direction as they listened to the crowds consider making Jesus king. But now, at the command of Jesus, here they are in the midst of a terrible storm striving against the winds, trying to make it to the other side, but harassed and tormented and battered by the tempest at sea. They wanted seats of honor at the table of the king and were instead sent to sit on a boat to be tossed and thrashed by a violent storm. Jesus put them in this situation because he knows that it is the best situation for them, even if the disciples don't quite recognize that yet. And so Jesus watched them from the mountain. He left them to row. He left them to strive and to endure the wind and to endure the waves. Throughout the New Testament, hopefully you see that Jesus makes a habit of this. He makes a habit of testing and strengthening people's faith by making them wait and making them linger in their time of trial. A great example is Lazarus. After Lazarus died in John chapter 11, Jesus stayed for two days in the place where he had already been visiting before he set out to Bethany to meet with the family of Lazarus. And as Jesus approached Bethany... Lazarus' sister Martha rushed out to see him, believing him to be too late. She said to him in John eleven twenty one, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had just been here. These are the words of a grieving woman in the midst of great turmoil. But as we know, as we see over and over again in Scripture, Jesus is never late. He is always on time. He always arrives at the right time. If he delays, he's watching from the mountain. And if he's watching from the mountain, he does so out of love for his children, as such trials and difficulties reveal, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.7, they reveal, listen to this, the tested genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Listen, so many believers, the Puritans spent much of their time writing about this subject of assurance of salvation, assurance of faith. Because so many struggle with this question. Am I truly saved? Can the Lord, does the Lord love someone like me? Am I truly one of the children of Christ or am I like the seed that is cast into the ground with thorns or like the seed that's cast into the ground with the stones? And one of the graces of our Lord, 
to us in need of assurance is, and this might be counterintuitive, but it is trial and suffering. In the throes of trial, the quality of a person's faith is tested. So how do you respond? What do you turn to? What do you hope in? Who do you call out to? How is your endurance? Do you look to Christ? Do you hope in Christ? Do you call out to Christ? I mean, Peter had the wherewithal later on to say, Lord, save me! Or over these last few years, have you looked to, trusted in, hoped in, cried out to the unsaved world to just do something? Save us. The tested genuineness of your faith is a precious gift of God given to you and given to me. And it's trials that reveal it. So when you are in your trials, as hard and as difficult as it might be, Scripture tells us over and over and over to rejoice and to boast in our weakness. Because, as the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So when Jesus sends his people away from situations in which their weakness might lead them astray, like the disciples as they see the crowds wanting to crown their rabbi, and he commands them instead to get into a boat to cross the sea, and then he watches those disciples struggle and strain at the oars while at sea because they're in the midst of a terrible storm. He does all of it for the purpose of testing and strengthening faith. And when it comes to Lazarus, after telling the townsfolk to take away the stone that blocked the entrance to the tomb, four days later, four days after Lazarus died, Jesus called out to him, Lazarus, come out. And guess what happened? Lazarus rose from the dead, came out of the tomb. Jesus was not too late. He did exactly as he meant to do for the benefit of everyone involved. And so here the disciples are in the boat. They're far away from the shore. Jesus knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what their struggles were. And after watching them for hours, strain at the oars, watching them struggle, verse 25 tells us, He came to them in the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night was anywhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., meaning that this storm has lasted pretty much all night long, and the disciples have been facing it for hours. And when the time came, Jesus came out to them walking on the sea. An act that is reserved in Scripture for God alone. Job, for example, spoke of the Lord, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And Asaph in Psalm 77, O God, your way is through the sea, your path through the great waters. And while the boat is being rocked and battered by the winds and the waves, and while the disciples might not be making any headway in, this face, in the face of this furious squall, notice that Jesus walks out to them on the sea without any difficulty at all. 
The same winds that are beating and battering and tossing the boat, they do not beat, batter, and toss Jesus in any way, shape, or form. They do nothing to impede Jesus. They can't drown him. They can't knock him over. They can't take him off course because the winds and the waves serve him. They obey him. But in verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. Now, it's easy to laugh at the disciples here, but have you ever really thought about putting yourself in their situation? I want you to just imagine the sight for a moment. You're in the midst of a terrible storm. You're tired and you're anxious. And in the moonlit dark of night, the appearance of a human form approaches you walking on the water. And as we all know, if we are people of common sense, we know that when people try to walk on water, the same thing always seems to happen. They sink. And knowing this to be the case, and yet at the same time, seeing the appearance of a human being walking to them on the water, the disciples are gripped with fear and they shout to each other in terror. Just imagine one of those movies where two guys are sitting and they see something scary and they look to each other and they scream together, Ah! And like this, that's exactly what's going on here with these disciples. They're looking at each other. They're screaming with each other in terror. It's a ghost! It's some supernatural apparition. It's some disembodied spirit on the water coming to get us. Again, put yourself in their place for a second. As these exhausted men believe that they're seeing a ghost in the midst of an angry howling storm, they cry out as a result. And is it any wonder they cry out in result? Think as a result. Think of it for think of your own life. How many of you screech or scream at the sight of a small insect or rodent? Now imagine if it was a ghost that you saw. But as they cried out, the text tells us in verse 27, immediately, Jesus immediately spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. To the terrified and screaming disciples, Jesus immediately spoke words of comfort. Take heart. Meaning, be courageous, have courage, be at peace. This is the same phrase that Jesus used when comforting the disciples in John 16 when he told them that I am going to leave. He said to them in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Did you notice it? In Christ you may, be, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. So stay close to Christ, always remembering this fact. He has overcome the world. We can see this peace, see this courage, see this confidence in the Apostle Paul, who faced storms at sea just like the disciples did. But whereas the disciples are terrified... While Paul is on his way to Rome to face trial before Caesar, a violent storm rises up to the degree that the text says in Acts chapter 27 that the entire crew lost all hope of being saved. But Paul, trusting in the word of God that he must appear before Caesar, in the midst of this violent storm, stood up and said to the, the people on the boat, Take heart, men, 
For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And what does Scripture tell us? Everything Scripture promises to us about where everything is going will come to pass exactly as it's been told. So why don't we stand up and say, Take heart. Take heart. Christ has overcome the world. I have faith in God. You have faith in God that it will be exactly as we have been told in the Word of God. See, in the world... We will face tribulation, but for the Christian in Christ who knows and who holds to Christ's word that he has overcome the world, there ought to be peace. Your experience of peace in this world is directly tied to your belief in the word of Christ. If you know it, if you feel it in your bones that Christ has overcome the world, then you will have all the peace in the world. And if peace at this moment eludes you, and in place of peace you find worry and fear and anxiety and agitation over the tribulations of the world, it's because you've lost sight of and focus on Christ's promise. He has overcome the world. We can be like the disciples in the boat on this day or like Paul on the boat later on. What a peace Paul possessed because he took heart, because he courageously trusted in the Lord in the midst of a light-threatening storm that led everyone else to abandon all hope. In Christ there is peace. In the world there is tribulation, but take heart. Now Jesus continued his word of comfort to the disciples saying, take heart, it is I. It is I. That's the same wording used throughout the Gospel of John. The phrase used here is, I am. Take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Don't be anxious or frightened about or in the circumstances you are facing. Why? I am. Now, you see the next, he says, do not be afraid. This is a command. This is an imperative that Jesus sets out for the disciples. And this command is one that is repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. If you are a student of Scripture, you will see that this phrase, in various forms, is repeated all over the place. Do not be afraid. Have no fear. Do not fear. Why? Because there is only one in Scripture that we are told to fear. And that's God Himself. Our reverent, obedient, trusting fear in God ought to so fill our hearts that there simply is no room left in our hearts to fear anyone or anything else other than Him. And examples of this are, are include, but are not limited to, Deuteronomy 31.6, as Moses spoke to the people of Israel, telling them not to fear the kings and the peoples that currently reside in the promised land that they were about to go in and take saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And when the people of Israel, after exile, returned to Jerusalem, a number of opponents lined up against them to sabotage them, to halt them, to to threaten their efforts, to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the city. But Nehemiah comforted the, word, the people with these words in Nehemiah 4.14, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great 
and awesome. And the sons of Korah in Psalm 49 said, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away, and his glory will not go down after him. And the Lord said through Isaiah, He told Israel, as they were about to be taken captive by the Assyrians, He said this, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. Even in their defeat and in their capture at the hands of the Assyrians, the Lord was commanding them not to be afraid. Why? Because the very next verse says this, For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. In other words, Assyria is only fulfilling my plans. And when they have completed their role in my plan, I will turn my fury on them to destroy them, which the Lord did. And as Daniel, living during the exile under the rule of foreign powers, had the Lord declare to him, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. You see the power of humility, the power of godliness, and the power of prayer. Again, as we read in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear God and God alone, is what Matthew is getting at there, or Jesus is getting at there. And to Paul, the Apostle Paul, whose preaching consistently led to riots, led to persecutions, led to hardships, wherever he went and preached, the Lord said to Paul in a vision in Acts chapter 18, do not be afraid. But go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. Or as the Apostle Peter wrote in his first letter, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear of the people who will persecute you and cause your suffering. And don't be troubled. And when John had a vision of the Lord in Revelation chapter 1, he wrote this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, Jesus is in control. This command goes out to every single person who loves Christ and who serves Christ. Do not be afraid. There is nothing in this world, no governments, no sicknesses, no global affairs, no wars, no rumors of wars, no leaders pulling strings behind the scenes, no situations, no storms, nothing, nothing that should bring us to fear. Because our Lord is the first and the last. Our Lord is the Alpha and the Omega. Our Lord is the Living One. He is alive forevermore, and He reigns over all things. And when you turn to Him in faith, you are, as a result, found in Christ, which means that you are far out of the reach of anything or anyone's grasp in this world. 
All anyone can do to you here and now, all anyone can do to anyone here and now, is that which the Lord himself allows, permits, or decrees. And if we know the truth that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, then what do we have to fear? What do you have to fear? Nothing! And for the disciples, their terror came as they battled this storm on the sea. But what is it for you? What causes you to cry out in fear? Whatever it is, hear the most comforting words, perhaps on the planet, in all of Scripture, as Jesus looks at you and immediately declares to you right now, in the midst of your anxiety, in the midst of your fear, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. This is one of the glorious realities of our faith. You can have peace. Yes, you. You can have peace that passes all understanding. A peace that carries you through all things. A peace that keeps you from fear as your eyes are fixed on Jesus who stands unmoved in the midst of the wind and in the midst of the waves that are causing so much trials and, trial and anxiety for everyone else. Why? Because they are His waves. He owns them. He controls them. And if you know and believe that, then why worry about them? Seriously. Why worry? Stay focused on Christ. Continue to obey His command to make disciples and to love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And Peter, when he heard those words, take heart and desire, do not be afraid, Peter, hearing the voice of Christ with great relief, immediately called out to Him saying, Lord, if... Or that word could also mean, or does also mean, since. Lord, since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Think about the joy. Think about the comfort. Think about the alleviation of fear that Peter and the rest of the disciples experienced upon hearing the voice of Jesus. Peter, so happy to see Jesus, wanted to get close to him because he knows that the, beside Jesus is the safest place to be. He sees the storm. He sees Jesus standing in the midst of the storm, unaffected by it. The waves and the, the, the wind, they're all going all over the place, and here's Jesus right there, standing. Come, Peter. Peter says, If you are on the water, Lord, command me so that I might do the impossible in order to get to you. It's a moment of great faith for Peter. Think about it. Conventional wisdom might say the boat in the midst of a sea during a storm is the safe place to be. But Peter knows that the boat without Jesus in it isn't as safe as the water where Jesus is. It's reminiscent of Moses in Exodus 33, right? After Israel's great sin of creating and worshiping a golden calf, he, the Lord told Moses that he would lead the people into the promised land, but he wouldn't live with them there because they are a stiff-necked and rebellious people. And Moses replied with these words in Exodus 33, 15, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Meaning, if your presence is going to remain here in the wilderness, then we will stay here in the wilderness. Your presence in the wilderness is better than a comfortable life in the promised land without you. Just like the presence of Christ in the midst of global turmoil is better than global peace without Him. Wherever Christ is, that's the best place to be. 
But as it seems to be the case for Peter, great moments of faith are generally followed by great moments of doubt. And don't judge Peter too harshly because he very much is a mirror into our own lives. Moments of faith followed by moments of doubt. And when Peter saw the wind, verse 30, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! You see, as Peter focused on Christ, he experienced peace in the midst of the chaos. After all, the storm was still raging all around him, but even so, with his eyes fixed on Christ, he got out of the boat, and the text says he came to Jesus. However, there was a point on this water-walking expedition that he saw the wind. His focus shifted from Christ to the situation raging around him. And his faith faltered as a result. And he very quickly forgot the call of Christ not to fear because Christ is here. Think about how many times we take our eyes off Jesus. Even as he stands firm and we start to focus on the situations that are raging around us. How many overcome by fear? And listen to me. Stop fooling yourself. Let's not kid ourselves here. Over the last two years, fear has raged in every one of our hearts to some, in some way, shape, or form. For some, it was coronavirus itself and the possible health complications that it might bring. For others, it has been fear of government overreach, fear of our losing worldly freedoms and the possibility of financial ruin, fear over the future of our children, And as these fears consume us, we sink. And then we try to take matters into our own hands, believing that it is by my might, by the strength and the actions of my hand, that these tempests will be calmed. And when we do that, we begin to sink. And in fact, the Lord made it clear. This was one of the first warnings He gave to the nation of Israel as they were entering the promised land. He said this in Deuteronomy 8, Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. Whatever it is causing you anxiety, whatever the worldly wind that's whipping around you, that's taking your eyes off Christ, turn those eyes back onto Him. Because Jesus isn't moving. He isn't going anywhere. He stands on top of that water during those waves. So why would you look here rather than where He is? Remember, Christ is still standing there in charge. The wind and the waves have done nothing to Him. He remains immovable, unfazed, and ready to stretch out His arm to save you who call out on his name for deliverance. Notice that Peter did that. As he sank, he cried out, Lord, save me! And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him and walked Peter to the boat. And it was only at that point that the winds and the waves ceased. Too often we look to ourselves, to institutions, to organizations, to groups, to people in this world for hope and for rescue. But if our text this morning tells us anything, it's this. Jesus is the answer. 
It is to Him that we, His people, cry out. It is to Him and to Him alone, knowing that He is strong, that He is mighty to save, that He sustains, that He oversees all the affairs of this corrupt world, that we cry out, Lord, save me. And notice while Peter took his eyes off Jesus and sank as a result, Jesus never stopped seeing Peter. Jesus had watched His disciples this whole time. But, so while Peter might have doubted, He isn't the focal point of the narrative. Little faith Peter is not the star here. Jesus is. Peter didn't deserve anything from Jesus, but Jesus, in his love, helped Peter in his time of need. Even as Peter's faith faltered, revealing to us what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, that Christ, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. This is one of the glorious perfections of Christ that he remains faithful to his children even when we, like Peter, display small faith. And so for each and every one of us who have, over at various points over these last few years, taken our eyes off Jesus and experienced anxiety and worry and fear in the turmoil and feel like we are sinking because of our lack of faith, call out to Jesus and trust like Peter did. Lord, save me. Because the response is immediately Jesus stretched out his hands and saved him. Jesus will take hold of you. He will ultimately, when all is said and done, bring you into the safety of the boat, calming all the winds that create the turmoil in this world. So in closing... While the disciples might have wanted to see Jesus crowned at king, crowned king at the beginning of this, Jesus sent them away and provided for them an even greater display of his rule and reign. And as a result, look at what they said in verse 32. Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The winds had served their purpose, and now they've ceased. And what did it lead the disciples to? The confession that Jesus Christ is Son of God. The disciples thought they knew what they wanted, but Jesus knew what they needed. Jesus knew what was best for them. The confession that Jesus is the Son of God. And if, if in your current difficulties, in the current global turmoil, you are able to gain a greater insight into the person the power, the wonder, the goodness, the purpose, the faithfulness, the deity, the magnificence of Christ, then wouldn't whatever difficulty that leads you there be worth it in the end? Even if you don't get things the way that you want them in this world, isn't greater knowledge of Christ in your life worth all of it? I think so. Father, we thank you and we praise you, and we honor you. We thank you that you are the Lord who treads the waters, and while a raging storm goes on around the disciples, you stand there unmoved. We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you control all things, and we thank you for the promise that you are moving all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So, Father, I pray that we would heed the persistent command of scripture do not fear do not fear do not fear i pray that as we are tempted by anxieties that the words of christ in our text this morning 
would ring loudly in our ears and bring us great comfort. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, it is only because of you, by you, and in you that we can have peace in this world. So I pray that the promise of a peace that passes all understanding would be the reality for each and every one of us as we look to you in greater trust and in greater faith. And we pray for this to be the reality as the Holy Spirit changes us in ever-increasing measure. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.